No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to a special MLB All-Star edition of The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schaaf. Over the next hour, former commissioner and baseball Hall of Famer Bud Selig talks about the proudest moment from his time running the league. I've had owners, small market, medium market owners say to me, if you hadn't done what you did in the 90s, we'd be out of business today. And I think that's true. Whether people want to understand that or not, there's no question. And former two-time World Series champion manager Cito Gaston wants to see big changes happen in baseball. Electronic balls and strikes. I would do that. You see a lot of games that are changed by balls that are called strike and their balls are called balls or strikes. It changes the whole game sometimes. I mean, to, to the point that you can lose a ball game. Plus, six-time All-Star Kenny Lofton explains how the game has changed from when he played. Guys are getting paid to hit home runs. They're not getting paid to get on base. Getting on base right now means nothing in the game. Nothing. That's the problem. If I was playing the game where I swung for the fences every time, I would have hit 25 or 30 home runs. This is the Sporting Life MLB All-Star Special on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. This is our baseball all-star game special. We have the show jam-packed with significant figures from the history of the national pastime. And our first guest is certainly one of the most significant figures in the annals of the modern game, or of any era actually. The longtime commissioner of baseball, a member of the Hall of Fame. We are speaking with Alan Bud Selig. Commissioner, thank you for joining us. Jeremy, pleasure to be with you. Glad to do it, and and, uh, you and I have done a lot of things together over the years, so this is a pleasure. Well, the the occasion isn't only our all-star special, but it is, of course, as well, the publication of your new book, For the Good of the Game, the inside story of the surprising and dramatic transformation of Major League Baseball written with the great baseball writer Phil Rogers from Chicago. But why did you want to put the story down in print? Well, you know, I thought about it for a long time, Um, and I'll tell you a little story, which I hope Jeremy will illustrate it. Years ago, um, I had gotten friendly with Doris Kearns Goodwin, the famed historian, who you know has written the foreword for the book, and um, I I convinced her and her husband, Richard Goodwin, and uh, she brought Samantha Powers, uh, who later went on to the United Nations, and Henry Aaron, my friend Henry Aaron was there, and you know, Jeremy... Uh, We started telling stories, sat there for a long time. And at one point she said to me, because I am a history buff, as you well know, you got to write a book. You can't, you've been through too much. These stories are fascinating. From that day forward, and everybody in baseball kept telling me the same thing. And so, Jeremy, being a history buff and being a history professor now, um, I just, there were a lot of subjects that I felt, at least from my perspective, hadn't been really told properly. And so I wanted to, I was anxious to write a book. It took me a long time. Uh, Richard Justice and Phil Rogers both did an excellent job. We spent endless hours. Um, and so 
it was just a matter of, I hope, at least from my historical perspective, telling the story the way I believe it happened. Speaking with the former commissioner of baseball, Bud Selig, uh, who was the man in charge of the game for more than 20 years. Uh, he's been out of the office of the commissioner for just the last four years, succeeded by Rob Manfred, who ran labor relations for him for a long time. And, and of course, Bud, one of the things you address in the book is your legacy in terms of baseball's era performance-enhancing drugs. And we've talked about this many times over the years. And and you've talked about how frustrated you were uh, with what you saw as the intransigence of the players' union on the subject of testing. Um, how do you address that issue here in the book? Well, I do, and I try to tell it just the way it happened. Um, you know, I've read and heard and you know, Jeremy, how sensitive I am to some of that, where we were slow to react, we didn't really care, it was good for our attendance, all of which are myths of, of, of enormous consequences. And so I, I detail almost year by year, and in some cases, that what happened from the time that Steve Wilstein in, uh, in Pittsburgh found uh, Angel and Mark McGuire's locker, and all the way, the, the thing, Jeremy, that's so frustrating to me is that people don't seem to understand this is a subject for collective bargaining. This is not something a commissioner can do. People said, oh, you know, if Landis were still commissioner, and I'd always joke, well, he's not. Look, in 2000, Jeremy, in 2000, I banned steroids in the minor leagues completely for the 2001 season, though it's been now 18, 19 years. And, but the others was a subject of collective bargaining. And I don't say this to, um, no sense going back all this, but Don Fear and Gene Orza of the union were very outspoken. I mean, I'm not telling you anything that comes as a shock to anybody who followed it. They didn't believe it. Look, bud, I, I had, I had Marvin Miller on this show probably 20 years ago. And I asked him about performance enhancing drugs. And I asked him why he thought uh, players should not be tested. Marvin Miller, the legendary uh, union organizer, the the godfather, uh, not for your benefit, but for our audiences, the, the man who really created the modern Major League Baseball Players Association. And he compared them to pilots, uh, you know, uh, you know, to, or he said, you know, if we're not going to what he said was, you know, why should I let my guys be tested if I don't have to? Um, and and of course, it was because about competitive balance. Right. And Jeremy, let me I was just going to say and good for you, because it's right. He went to his grave saying that if he were still there, that nobody would be tested. He, he talked about peeing in a bottle to be very blunt about it. And uh, and so, look, that was Marvin's view. That was Gene Orza's view. That was Don's view. And so this was a Herculean struggle. This was something we battled um, day after day, year after year. In '02, we got what I – that was the last item. I'll never forget it, Jeremy. It's 7 in the morning. We got it done. And um, 
it was, I thought, a weak program. It turned out pretty good. 5% and so on and so forth. The 5% in 2003 triggering mandatory testing once that threshold was reached. Exactly right. And But even in 05 and 06, in fact, when I went and I got Senator Mitchell, who had done a lot of work for me, George Mitchell, to to do a whole steroid thing in 06, because there was still a lot of stuff going on. We had a better program, but not where we should be. And as you know, he came up with a uh, with a with a program and made twenty recommendations. By the way, which we have followed, and and um, and so today, after a lot of agony, we have the toughest testing program in American sports. Better than that, water the World Anti Doping Association will tell you we have as good a program as there is in America. I'm proud of that, but. We went through a, a lot of agony, and and again from a historic. And I tell my students this, Jeremy, all the time. It seems that the fact that it was a subject of collective bargaining has been something that a lot of people either didn't understand or just didn't know. And but I think a lot of people covered you for a long time in baseball and followed baseball in the decades that you were running the sport. Uh, will be surprised at some of the candor in this book, the things that you address very candidly now that you are no longer the person uh, on Park Avenue in the commissioner's office. What was the thing you most wanted to unburden yourself of when you wrote this? I think the steroid situation, which we've already discussed, um, how we changed the economics. Because, I, you know, in the end, in the 90s, where I took a lot of criticism for uh, quite a while, because of the revenue-sharing thing and trying to change things. Remember this, Jeremy. Baseball hadn't changed its economics since the 20s and 30s. So when I say I inherited a mess, and you know what kind of mess it was because Phil Rogers left it in the book and it's okay, it was because our economic plan was an anachronism. It was just tired. It was old. But change comes slowly. I regard baseball as a social institution, Jeremy, and I'm telling you social institutions are resistant to change. So um, it's okay. I, I, I don't uh, – but that was really, really difficult. And the steroid thing, well, for all the reasons we've already discussed, the union fighting it, uh, Marvin and uh, everybody else, Don Fear and Gene Orson, everybody else fighting it, fighting it publicly, fighting it in front of Congress. And um, – Somehow that that whole complete historical story, I think, really has not been told the proper way. And I hope that people, and so far the early returns are good. They at least understand what happened. May not agree, and I understand uh, uh, anything you do in life. There'll be critics, and uh, but um, I, I'm proud of what we did. There were more change in the 22, 23 years than in the history of the game, and I think, for the most part, uh, they've worked out wonderfully well. And I should say, we're speaking with Bud Selig about his new book, For the Good of the Game, The Inside Story of the Surprising and Dramatic Transformation of Major League Baseball, being published July 9th, although available for pre-order, of course, on Amazon and other websites. And, and Bud, you mentioned how resistant institutions like baseball are to change, how tough it is to, to turn a big ship around like baseball right now, um, you know, your successor, Rob Manfred, is dealing with an issue that seemed to almost crop up suddenly with a spate of recent incidents involving fans getting hit by baseballs. 
Um, recommendations were sent from the commissioner's office a few years ago about extending netting first to the inside of the dugout, then the outside of the dugout. Now we see teams going all the way down to the foul poles. Jerry Reinsdorf, your old friend, he was the first to do it just last week. Um, why does it take so long for baseball to enact changes? Well, it does. It, it, it does if I could just, uh, uh, you know, just the, if you go back to the wild card, which was so logical. And yet, boy, did I take fierce criticism. You did. Not from the owners. The owners were quite great with me. But in the netting case, look, I, I this went back to the days that I was with the Brewers and then Commissioner. The fans sitting there, your own customers fight it. Interesting. They really do. They think it blocks their view. They don't like it. But I think overall, the way things are working out now and um, – I, I, you've seen significant change already, and I think much more to come, Jeremy. When you look back, but at, you, at, at your tenure as commissioner, and so many things were accomplished, what are the things you're, you take the most pride in? Well, I, I, as I said earlier, Jeremy, the economic changes, I've had owners, small market, medium market owners say to me, if you hadn't done what you did in the 90s, we'd be out of business today. And I think that's true. Whether people want to understand that or not, there's no question. And so there's no question, Jeremy, that I think that the all the changes, many of them controversial, many of them painful, really painful, at least caused me pain, um, have really worked out well. And, uh, and you know, the... My father taught me years ago, and um, and I want to say this to you, too. Your father was really a great, great, great newspaper person. I mean, uh, legendary in a certain sense, and you really followed that, if, I, if you'll allow me to say it. I will. I, I appreciate it. Thank you, bud. And the fact of the matter is that change often comes slowly, painfully, misunderstanding, so on and so forth. But if you really, I, I will go back for the title of the book, For the Good of the Game. It turned out, um, you know, Jeremy, when I was in Kansas City in 2014 and 15, and they were in the World Series, won one of them, it gave me enormous pride because that couldn't have happened in the mid or late 90s. And so um, it's those kinds of experiences as as painful as they may be, and I don't mind telling you that um, uh, there were times in the 90s when I was watching television and uh, my wife would turn it off because I was getting pounded and she couldn't understand why we wanted to listen to it. You're talking about the luxury tax, the redistribution of wealth, the common pool of that's exactly uh, what I'm talking of, yes. of money, which made it possible, yes. which you write about in the book. We're speaking with Bud Selig about his new book, which is being published on July 9th, For the Good of the Game, the inside story of the surprising and dramatic transformation of Major League Baseball. And, Bud, you're you're 84 now. Um, the game has meant so much to you. You were a fan before you were an owner. You were an owner before you were the commissioner. Um, are you still a fan? Oh, no question about it. Um, I tell you what I did last night. I watched a bunch of games tonight. I'll watch all 15 teams play at one time, and I'm still a fan. I am. I, um, uh, I'm i now able to uh, 
to uh, devote more time to it. And I do. I'm a fan. Look, very simple. I love the game. I think, Jeremy, it comes through in the book. Um, I've always loved the game. And, I, you know, I tell my students, and I would say the same thing to you. Uh, it's true in everything in life. If you don't have a passion for what you're doing, you ought not to do it. I've always had a passion for the game since I was a little kid. These days, Bud, uh, other than watching baseball and writing books, what else do you do these days? What, what keeps you busy? Not that that's not enough. I'm teaching, Jeremy, at three universities, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, my alma mater, a history course, History 600. It's Baseball in American Society, 1945 to the present. I'm teaching at Marquette University in law school, which I've been for 10 years, even though I'm not a lawyer. I've I've joked to a lot of lawyers. They didn't think it was funny, but I practice law without a license. And then at Arizona State University, uh, so I have three days of that. People ask me how I've enjoyed retirement. I don't know because I haven't retired. <laughs> Bud Selig, uh, it's such a pleasure uh, catching up with you again, and congratulations on the new book. Bud Selig's new book is For the Good of the Game, the inside story of the surprising and dramatic transformation of Major League Baseball. It is going to be essential reading for anyone interested in the history of the national pastime. For the first time, the commissioner sharing the inside view of an entire era of the game's history. But again, thank you so much for joining us here in The Sporting Life. Jeremy, it's been a pleasure. And I, you know, you talked about candor before, and that's the one thing I wanted to do in this book. So I'm glad it's coming through. Look, it's great to talk to you. And um, thank you for having me on. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. It's a pleasure now to welcome to the show one of the great managers of his or any era, Cito Gaston, who won two World Series managing the Blue Jays in 1992 and 1993. Cito, thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Cito, is the All-Star Game still special for you? Well, I think All-Star Games are special uh, not only for me, but for players. I mean, it's really quite a <clears throat> an honor to uh, to manage an all-star team, even coaching one. I was lucky enough to play in one, too. So uh, they mean a lot to me, and I think they mean a lot to the players, too. You played in the all-star game when you were with the Padres in 1970. Now, back then, 1970, the all-star game was a national event in the U.S. I think the numbers were something around 35 million people watching the All-Star Game. Uh, these days, the All-Star Game numbers are down about 6 or 7 million, I think. And, and that's a that's a huge drop. And, you know, people can uh, attribute a lot of factors uh, playing into that, you know, interleague play, the uh, number of games we get to watch now on TV all the time. Why do you think the All-Star Game, in terms of being a national event, isn't on the same level that it was when you were playing in that game 49 years ago this summer? I guess that, uh, you know, the All-Star Game was just one game and back then. And uh, uh, earlier they had a couple of All-Star Games, if you can remember, a year. And uh, when I got, got into a league, it was just one game. But leading up to the All-Star Game right now, you do have a lot of entertainment going on. As far as uh, uh, future play, future games with the uh, young kids, is going to be future Hall of Famers or stars, and then you have some the home run hitting contest, which I think all those things are great. But I don't know. I maybe maybe it's a little bit too much for uh, everybody to watch three days in a row or two nights in a row, whatever, how long ever it takes to 
have those particular events. What do you think about the ancillary events like home run derby and such? Well, you know, I think it's great. I mean, I think it's fun. And, uh, uh, you know, I think players and probably managers, we're probably more partial to it than anyone else. But uh, I think, it's, you know, they pack the stadium. And I, I think there's a lot of people looking at it. Um, I, you know, All-Star Games, uh, I, I wish I really knew why it's changed so much, but I'm only throwing those things out there. That they, none of those have to be a, a correct at all. We're speaking with Cito Gaston, the former major leaguer and major league manager who won two World Series titles, guiding the Toronto Blue Jays in the early 1990s. And, and you know, um, Cito, the, the All-Star Game, when you're managing it, um, you know, it, it must get kind of complicated, right? It's not all fun and games. People care about the outcome. How do you balance being competitive, trying to win, and also protecting players and having fun? Is it is it a difficult juggling act? Well, it is because you try to get everybody in as you possibly can. That's number one. And certainly to protect players, that's, that's number two. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a thing that... Uh, uh, you might you, you don't get to take everybody you like to take. I think they should expand that all star roster sometimes, but it's more difficult for managers to get the guys a chance to play. But yes, it's tough. I mean, uh, I've had some incidents that guys didn't get to play and they were quite upset. But uh, that that particular time, I was just trying to protect the two guys that I kept out of the lineup. Is it still, you know, among players from what you can see, is it still considered a tremendous honor? Is it something that really matters? I think more so than ever. I think these guys really enjoy it. Uh, you can see it on, on the All-Star Game. Are you there? You're obviously watching these guys on TV. They're having a great time. Uh, a lot of these guys are friends. They're a little bit more friendly these days than they were when I was playing. But I think it's a great thing, and I'm pretty sure the guys enjoy it. And, uh, hey, uh, if they had enough time, you should have too. We're speaking with Cito Gaston, who 27 years ago became the first African-American manager in Major League Baseball to win the World Series uh, just one of the distinctions in your career. The, these days we talk, um, we talk a lot about declining participation among African Americans in the game of baseball. To what do you attribute that? I think it's gotten a little bit more expensive to play this game. It certainly has. Uh, organized, it's a little bit more organized than it, it was in the past. You have traveling teams and a lot of these kids can't afford to do that. And then a lot of kids, a lot of kids think they're all going to play basketball or think they're all going to play football. So there's not a lot of participation as far as uh, uh, blacks or African Americans in this country in baseball, uh, unlike the Aladdin countries, which have really uh, put a lot of guys in the big leagues. As you know right now, there's quite a few guys from Latin America in, this, in, in the big leagues and still growing. Cito, you know, um, the game today gets criticized a lot uh, for taking too long, too many pitching changes especially too much too much specialization guys don't go more than six innings it's almost like every game is an all-star game sometimes uh what are what are your thoughts about the pace of play and the constant pitching changes well you know we complain about it quite quite a bit and i don't really complain about it because the bottom line for me if you're a manager the bottom line you don't care how long it takes as long as you win that game (laughs) But if only you own the losing part of that game, sometimes it does take too long. I don't know. I, I think there's a few things they can do. I, I don't have any problems with changing pitches like and different things like that. But, you know, the instant replay is good, but I think you could solve a lot of problems, and I know a lot of people would disagree with this, if you would take the instant replay out and call balls and strikes. 
and uh, and not get rid of the umpire, just electronically do it. And I think you have a better game, and you have a faster game. Electronic balls and strikes. I would do that. How I I. I I don't really know. How would you implement that? How would how would that work? Well, you, you know, the empire can, you know, they, they got ways now that, uh, you know, if, they, if there's a strike, they're just here, here in his ear, strike, ball, there's a ball. And you see a lot of games that are changed by uh, balls that are called uh, balls that are called yeah. uh, strike and their balls or balls that are called balls or strikes. It changes the whole game sometimes. I mean, to, to the point that, uh, you know, you can lose a ball game. I know if you go back to 1983, 85 when we were in the world I mean in playoffs and Kansas City beat us out um, and uh, they went on to beat St. Louis if you had instant replay back then George Otter was out by a step or two and of course St. Louis St. Louis would have been the champions at that particular time so instant replay does work but I think you might have to limit it a little bit uh, I mean I mean you can they complain about getting bringing pitches in from uh, from the bullpen, but it takes a lot of time sometimes to do the instant replay. Cito Gaston managed the Toronto Blue Jays to World Series titles in both 1992 and 1993. Cito, I really appreciate your joining us here on The Sporting Life to talk baseball in the All-Star Game. It's my pleasure. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. We're joined now by someone who was a six-time All-Star one of the great players of the 1990s and early 2000s. He spent nearly two decades in the major leagues. We're joined by the fleet and the accomplished and the six-time All-Star, Kenny Lofton. Kenny, thank you for being with us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Kenny, when you think about the All-Star game, uh, what made it special for you? Well, again, I think the first, you know, the first one was very special because I was pretty excited about being a part of it, I was in '94. It was in Pittsburgh, and um, I just felt, you know, very special. And just to be a part of a of um, a, 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 a midseason classic that that created the best players in the game, and I felt like I was part of it. We're speaking with Kenny Lofton, the six-time All-Star, the center fielder, most famously for the Cleveland Indians, for whom he played. 1992 through 1996, and then again 1998 uh, through the 2001 season and finished up with the Cleveland Indians in his 17th Major League season at the age of 40 in 2007. 2,428 career hits, 1,528 career runs scored, and 622 stolen bases. Uh, Kenny, this season we're seeing balls flying out of the park like never before. Uh, even what happened in the 1990s doesn't compare to the uh, home run rate that we're seeing this season. It's, you know... Um, it's unprecedented. What do you think's going on? Guys are getting paid to hit home runs. They're not getting paid to get on base. So getting on base right now means nothing in the game. And I think that's the problem. And they have this launch angle where everyone's, <clears throat> um, everyone's swinging for the fences. If I was playing the game where I swung for the fences every time, I would have hit 25 or 30 home runs. Because the opportunity that you are swinging for the fences you're going to pretty much have a chance to connect as many times are you swinging, but at the same time, you're going to be striking out. Like last year's All-Star game, I felt people felt it was the best. I felt it was the worst. You know, he said it was 10 home runs or so many home runs, but it was 25 strikeouts. You can't strike out that many times. 
I mean, again, All-Star is about guys getting on base for having fun, you know, getting hits and all. They weren't getting any hits. They were striking. When you're striking out 25 times in a game, that's just that's, – that's also unheard of. But that's the way this game is going today. You know, Kenny, uh, Bill Buckner died a few weeks ago, the great first baseman and outfielder who almost had, who had more than 2,700 hits in the major leagues. He won a batting title, striking out only 17 times that season. And he never struck out more than twice in a game in his entire career, 22 seasons in the big leagues. What we see now, as you say, is something completely different. You don't seem happy about it. Well, no, I don't because I know the part of my game and what I did in the game, it felt like, you know, because, again, I always say when I play, the guys with the RBIs, RBIs mean runs batted in. So that means that someone had to be on base to bat this person in. And nowadays you don't have – you have a lot of solo home runs in which you have your – multi-run you know, run home runs or whatever. But if you look at the majority of them, they're solo home runs. You even got your leadoff hitter trying to hit home runs every time they come to the plate because I don't like that people are changing the game just for home runs. I didn't like the part when they said back in the 90s, chicks chick dig the long ball. What about the chicks digging the guy getting on base, <laughs> making some things happen, getting on base, stealing bases? Exactly. You know, that was the chick should have been dealing, digging that. But they wanted to dig the long ball. They should they should have been digging Ricky Henderson, although he had some pop, too. And you had some pop, too. I mean, you hit uh, 130 home runs, or you hit 130 home runs in the big leagues. You had 116 triples. I mean, your career slugging percentage is 423. So you, you had some pop. But you've been outspoken, Kenny, in the past. And one of the things that... Um, you know, is noteworthy about your legacy in the game with all of your, all of your achievements, uh, six time all star, uh, all those runs scored, all those stolen bases among the all time leaders at 299 career batting average, 372 on base. You got barely any support when you were first eligible for the Hall of Fame under 5% threshold, which meant you were right off the ballot. And, um, that was controversial, and you've been outspoken about uh, why you think you deserve more support and why you haven't gotten that support. And it has to do with the uh, preponderance of PEDs in baseball at the time that you were playing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I felt like, again, my time in the game, I didn't actually see what was going on, but I knew what was going on. And for me to be in the game at that time, knowing how I played the game, and I just feel like you, if you want to play the game the right way, you play it the right way, you know. And I felt that's what I did. And I know a lot of players played it the right way, but there are also some players who didn't play the game the right way. And that kind of upsets me because it makes me it makes my numbers look on the bottom part of the totem pole because of the guys who have, what I say, cheated the game. So if you want to cheat the game and put your numbers up there, you know, and I just feel like, you know, these guys who cheated the game – they cheated the opportunity for them to become a Hall of Famer, from my standpoint, because of they, they cheated to get the numbers. I didn't cheat to get my numbers. If they didn't cheat, my numbers would be stacked up at the top echelon of the totem pole because they didn't cheat. But since they cheated, my numbers dropped way down. My free agency at those times, they weren't even looking at me at that time when I did become a free agent because I wasn't hitting the home runs. And that's, again, that's what upset me is that guys are being praised for cheating. And that's what's kind of confusing me. 
That's all. And you're right. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Uh, your numbers, if you take them outside the context of the era in which we had the Maguires and the Bonses and the Sosas and, and so many people hitting these absurd amount of home runs, um, try Juan Gonzalez and, and, and I don't know if Juan Gonzalez was doing steroids. I think he was named in the Mitchell report. We don't know for sure, but the kinds of things that certain guys were doing that made people suspicious, it, it, it makes it hard for a guy like you, uh, to stand out. And what do you think should be done about it in terms of the Hall of Fame? Well, again, I'm not a Hall of Famer, so I don't know. I think guys like, you know, like maybe Barry, you know, Barry Larkin, you got a Paul Molitor, Eddie Murray, Winfield, those guys, are the ones that you can ask that question about because that they're in a, an elite class that they didn't cheat the game and their numbers. So not a lot of their numbers are are also starting to go downward compared to the guys who have been cheating. But those are the guys that will have a better answer to that than I do because again, I'm not a Hall of Famer. I got off the ballot, so and my numbers doing it the right way look like they're they're kind of bad. If we can compare it, you know, compare it to those guys. And I think those are the guys who are in the Hall of Fame with uh, doing it the right way should be the guys, Frank Thomas, those guys should be speaking out about what's going on. I mean, again, I'm not there. I can't. I have no. I have no say or anything because I'm just this low guy on the totem pole. We're speaking with Kenny Lofton, the six-time All-Star for our All-Star Game special, and and. Kenny, also one of the great all-around uh, two-sport athletes of his era, um, a great basketball player at the University of Arizona, played in the 1988 Final Four, uh, which was ultimately won by Kansas, and of course a 17-season Major League Baseball career. Kenny, I know you are now involved with a foundation, the Still Got Game Foundation, a 501c nonprofit uh what is the objective of the I Got Game, of the Still Got Game, I should say, foundation? Well, I don't have any game anymore, but it's still, <laughs> in your mind, you still got game. So I think a lot of guys came together and felt like the objective for us to go out and to, to inspire and to help people. And I always, my might go always to help the, the people who are not as privileged as I was and other guys who are in the game or played the game and, and just, giving someone a boost or a little heads up in what they're trying to do and whatever type of organization that needs help, especially for the young kids that's coming up. That was very important for me and where I grew up and in Cleveland and in East Chicago, just just to give someone a, a chance. And we, uh, myself, Griffey, LaTroy, um, Tory Hunter, we felt like, you know, we need to keep giving back even though we're not in the game. We have that opportunity and we um, partner also with a guy, Ben Posen, who's at, at a company called Linebrook, Linebrook Capital in California, felt like, you know, we, we all need to keep giving back as much as we can. Even though we're not in the game, we thought about it. It's like we still got game. And this is part of our, our game is to give back in whatever areas we need. And we all come up with certain areas of, of um, life that we see in front of us as we travel, who needs help. And that's what we're going to try to push forward to, to, to help who's in need. 
Kenny Lofton, a six-time All-Star and a player. I'm not just saying this, Kenny, because you're on the show, but someone who certainly deserved a better look from the Hall of Fame. Maybe that's something that can be rectified. It's really a pleasure having you on the show, talking about baseball today and in your day and about the Still Got Game Foundation. Thanks for having joined us, Kenny. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having joined us for a special MLB All-Star Game edition of The Sporting Life. Remember that ESPN Radio is your home for all the all-star festivities live from Progressive Field in Cleveland. Home Run Derby coverage begins Monday night at 8 Eastern Time. All-star game coverage begins 7 Eastern Time Tuesday.